All right, guys, go ahead and take a seat and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. Have you ever heard the expression, I have some good news and some bad news? Which one do you want to hear first? Have you ever heard that? What do people usually ask for first? What do you guys usually ask for when somebody asks? Who wants, raise your hand if you'd like to hear the bad news first. Raise your hand if you want to hear the good news first. Okay, so the majority of us here would want to hear the bad news first. Well, why is that? Well, for the most part, when people get the bad news first, it's kind of like, let's get away, let's get the negative emotions away, let's get them out of the way, and hopefully the good news will help us feel better. However, sometimes even after hearing the good news, it still might not be as comforting. For example, a conversation between a son and his father. The son tells the dad, Dad, I have good news and bad news. Which one do you want to hear first? The dad says, tell me the bad news, son. The son says, I got in a, I got in a car accident. The dad says, okay, what's the good news? Well, the car, the car's airbags, they work perfectly. Another one, I have good news and bad news, a defense attorney told his client. First, the bad news, the blood test came back and your DNA is an exact match with that found at the crime scene. Oh no, cried the client. What's the good news? Your cholesterol is down to 140. <laughs> See, today we're gonna learn about some startling news that Jesus gives his disciples. And in this case, the good news definitely outweighs the bad. Let's begin reading today's passage in Matthew 20, verse 17. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him and on the third day he will be raised up see for the last couple of weeks we've been studying this full scene of Jesus's ministry and teachings we saw him leave Galilee Capernaum towards Jerusalem and he has a stop at Perium, and there he's performing signs and wonders. He's teaching and debating with the Pharisees on divorce. He's discipling his disciples. He's pouring into them. He's blessing children. Remember that lesson that Emilio gave us? He's teaching on how we can be saved, the rich young ruler. He, he's teaching them about the blessings that the disciples and all those who leave everything for Christ will have. That Brandon taught that one. And then this Sunday, this past Sunday, Matt and Miss L., uh, they taught on the last shall be the first, the first shall be the last when it comes to salvation. God offers it to everyone. Some are saved at an early age. Some are saved at their deathbed. The glory still goes to God. So today, Jesus is getting ready to go up towards Jerusalem to face the realities of what he came to earth for. And he wants to alert his disciples of what's to come. So 
We're going to look at one major scene today. And that scene is going to be divided into two parts. The major scene is it's a conversation between Jesus and his disciples of his death and resurrection being foretold. The first part we're going to talk about is the setting where this conversation takes place. The second part we're going to discuss is the actual prophecy. And this prophecy consists of four events. And we're going to look at each event. The theme, main idea of today's lesson that I want you to have as we study this is believers should trust in Christ as the Messiah because of the resurrection. Believers should trust in Christ as the Messiah because of the resurrection. Let's begin by exploring the first part of today's scene, the setting. Verse 17, as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves and on the way, he said to them, as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem. So we can assume that this is another day of ministry. Matthew now sets his mind on his journey to Jerusalem. They just finished the conversation of the, the parable that he gave to, to the people, the, the last being the first and the first being the last. He's going with his disciples and he's going to make his final trip to Jerusalem to do ministry there, but eventually to fulfill the work of his father. This is, you can see the importance of this trip, his last trip to Jerusalem. He's been to Jerusalem many times, but this will be his last. He left with his disciples from Capernaum, Galilee, with the purpose of reaching Jerusalem. He made a stop in Perea, where all of chapter 19 and the beginning of chapter 20 takes place. But what does it mean? When it says that Jesus was going up, up to Jerusalem. Anybody want to give a chat? Going up to Jerusalem. Anybody want to maybe guess why he's saying going up? I know you know, Silas. I know you know. Because he, he lived in Israel. Yes. Is it because Yes, elevation. Elevation wise, right? So when the colloquial term or the term at the time was it's going up to Jerusalem. So wherever you were around, whether you were in Jericho, whether you were in Berea, whether you were in... Bethany, you're going from there, you're going up to Jerusalem. That's, that's why he's saying they were going up to Jerusalem. And why were they going to Jerusalem during this time period? Well, to celebrate Passover, Passover, I was, I was a Jewish custom, okay? Now, they're going to Jerusalem because it's Passover time. He's, Jesus is going with his disciples. But there's another reason why he's going to Jerusalem. And in Luke's account... He records, to fulfill the prophecy for the Messiah to be sacrificed for all of humanity, as Jesus himself states in Luke 18, 31. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all the things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. So they're going to celebrate the Passover, but they're also, Jesus is also going to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament. Now, this was also confirmed in Mark's account. And look what a commentator wrote. It was common knowledge that the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sought to kill Jesus. Therefore, the disciples were amazed and those who, were, who followed were fearful in Mark 10.32 because they thought it not only unnecessary but foolhardy for Jesus to even think of going to Jerusalem. Mark 10.32-34 says, They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful, 
And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, and three days later, he will rise again. So Jesus, being the loving and kind Savior that he is, he knew the gravity of what was going to happen. And he wanted to prepare his disciples for the realities that were going to happen shortly. So as they started the journey, he set some aside and told them this news. He took the 12 disciples aside by themselves on the way he said to them. As stated earlier, Mark's account recalls that they were traveling with large groups. Now, where do these large groups come from? It could be that Jesus, they were following Jesus. We know that many times Jesus gathers a large group. Or it can just be the thousands of other people that are going to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. That, that's common. The roads are going to be filled with people going to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. So regardless of how the crowds were, why the crowds were there, we know that Jesus takes his 12 aside to tell them this news. Is this something common? Yes. Every time there's sometimes that Jesus takes, he gives a lesson to the crowd and then he takes his disciples on his own and he tells them privately what he wants them to know. And in this case, that's what he's doing. And also, this is not meant to be a parable. This is something truthful that he was going to tell them. And he set them aside. The Greek for on the way is journey and means the act of traveling from one place to another, often by foot or for over a long distance. So as they leave to Jerusalem, while they're on the journey, he tells them these news, this news. All right. Now, it's interesting to know that this, they were in Jericho. And we know that because later in Matthew 20, you'll see that he heals two blind men and they're in Jericho. So it's about 14 to 30 miles from Jericho to Jerusalem. And this is the only thing that Matthew records. 30 miles is a long time. That's a, that's a lot, maybe two or three days of walking. And this is the only conversation that he records. This is some revealing information that only was meant for his disciples. And it was important for them to know because of what Jesus says to them in John 15, 15. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all the things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. See... Jesus is now letting them know, again, the gravity of what's going to happen, the seriousness of the situation. He's telling them, I'm letting you know the details now of what's going to happen to me in the near future, and I need you to be ready. The majority of these apostles were the foundation of the church. The majority of these apostles wrote the New Testament. So it's important that they would have heard this prediction from Jesus. So when eventually the readers are reading, they'll see that Christ is who he said he would be because he accomplished the prophecies that he prophesied even of himself. So after Jesus sets the 12 apart, he then communicates them the foretelling of his death and resurrection. Let's move to the second part of today's scene, which is the prophecy, which is from verses 18 through 19. So the prophecy has four events. The first event deals with the accusers. Verse 18, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. The verse begins with behold, which in the Greek means to look and see, pay attention. 
It continues with, we're going up to Jerusalem, which is basically the same um, explanation that we just talked about. They're going up in elevation. Then he says, he calls himself the son of man. And the son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. The son of man is referencing Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. It says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So Jesus was hoping that in his reference of Son of Man, they would reference, oh, Son of Man, we know, we've seen that, we've heard that before. That's Daniel chapter 7. This is kind of a, you know when you go to Sunday school and you learn specific Bible stories that are just part of you? You know like David and Goliath, that's something that you learn that everyone knows, right? That Moses separates the Red Sea. Any Jew that would know their Bible that went to, if they had youth Sunday school or NBC kids in Israel, whatever, they would have learned this. And Jesus was hoping that they would know. And also Matthew, help, hoping the fact that the Jewish readers that are reading this would take into consider, oh, son of man. Wait, isn't that a reference to Daniel 7, the Messiah? So what is going to happen to the son of man? He's going to be delivered. And this in Greek means to be turned over into custody and is usually associated negatively. See, his disciples would have known this to be the case as they heard it before in Matthew 4.12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. Matthew 5.25. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Matthew 10.17. But... Be aware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. So this idea of handing over, it was negatively associated with courts, with a negative verdict at the end. The chief high priests here mentioned are the elite, the elite ruling class of the Jews, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. The scribe, a learned person who was able to read and write, probably with a focus also on teaching the meaning of written documents. And what is he going to, he's going to be delivered to this political leadership, religious political leadership of the Jews. Can anybody guess the name of what they consisted of? What were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes of this elite class? What were they called? Anybody? Fox? Yes, the Jewish Sanhedrin. Good job, Fox. Now, does this come true? Of course it does. Matthew 27, 1. Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. A commentator wrote that in this account, Jesus specifically mentions that he will be turned to the high priest, while in the other times he predicts his death and resurrection, but he simply mentions he's going to be delivered to the elders. So here he's saying, guys, before I've told you I'm going to be delivered, I'm going to be delivered to the Jewish elders. Here, I'm going to be delivered to the political ruling class. And it's important that we understand this as we're going to discuss it in a bit. Let me, let me, let's stop there for a second. 
Would you be surprised if you were a disciple after hearing part of this news? Think about it. Literally, you just, Jesus mentioned the blessings that he would give you for those that leave everything behind. Right? Leave everything behind. Take your own cross and follow me and your, 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 your rewards in heaven will be great. And he's telling them, well, the son of man is going to be given over to the political elite and they're going to condemn him to death. They also might have had still a false expectation of Jesus' messiahship. Some of them still believed that he was going to reign in the physical kingdom and that he was going to liberate them from the Romans. How do I know this? Not to steal Brandon's thunder for Sunday, but the next, the next couple of verses, you had the mother of Zebedee, the sons of Zebedee, asking Jesus, hey, who's going to be to your right and to your, hand, to your left? Can, you, can my kids be there? Jesus is just saying, I'm going to die, I'm going to resurrect, and the, follow, and the only thing you can think of is this. They're still thinking, oh, Jesus is going to reign, and he's going to reign here on earth, and we're going to reign with him. And like I mentioned in Mark, it was common knowledge that the Jewish political leaders wanted him dead. And here he is in the front, and the people were amazed that he was in the front of all these people. And what did they think in their mind? Oh, here he comes. We're going we're gonna to reign with Jesus. He's going. He's going to confront. He's going to be the king that we've been waiting for. So look at the contrast. I will bless you greatly in heaven for leaving everything behind. And oh, by the way, I'm going to be giving up to the Jewish Sanhedrin, the political ruling elite. So what happens next? What happens when he's handed over to the chief high priest? Basically, it's expected like a trial is expected in the sense of delivered to, reflects, and is associated with trials. And they're going to have this trial. And what are they going to come up with? They're going to condemn him to death. Jesus tells his disciples, uh, and they will condemn him to death. Jesus tells his disciples after he is turned into the, uh, into the religious leader, after he's turned into the religious leaders of Israel, that they will condemn him to death. He will face trial with fake witnesses trying to catch him. He never defended himself against false accusations. Instead, he spoke the truth. What truth did he speak? Everyone open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. This is the trial that Jesus endures. This is what condemns him to death. Verse 57. Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered him and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus. So that they may put him to death. And they did not find any. Even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on two came forward. And said this man stated. I am able to destroy the temple of God. And to rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him. Do you not answer? What is that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. 
And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witness? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, he deserves death. This is the death that he's condemned to. By simply saying the truth. The Greek for condemn here means to declare guilty. The Greek for death means the event of dying or departure from life. It's not meant to be a spiritual death. He was sentenced to a physical death. How did, did this happen, guys? Did this happen? We just read it. Yes, in verse 66. What do you think? They answered, he deserves death. So after the Jewish Sanhedrin condemns him to death, the next event in the prophecy includes his humiliation, his suffering, and his death. Verse 19. And will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. See, the reason why they handed him over to the Gentiles, which in this case were the Romans, because under Roman law, they were the only ones that were allowed to sentence someone to death. The Romans allowed the conquered peoples that they conquered to maintain some sort of autonomy to rule themselves. However, when it came to sending somebody to death, they gave, they didn't allow them to do so. So that was only something that the Romans could do. Was this fulfilled? Of course it was. Matthew 27, 2. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor, the Roman procurator. See, the idea of being killed by a Gentile was unfathomable. It was humiliating. It was gut-wrenching. And this is who he was turned over to the Gentiles. What would the Gentiles do? They would mock him. They would scourge him. And they would crucify him. The Greek for mock means to make sport, to subject to laughter or ridicule for one's own pleasure. How did this mocking occur? Well, let's see what Matthew observed. Matthew 27. Open your Bibles to Matthew 27, verse 29 through 31. Sorry, verse 29. 20, Matthew 27, and I'm going to go over verses. Verse 29, and after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Verse 30, they spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. Verse 31, and they had mocked him and they took a scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. Verse 38, at the time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. Verse 39, and those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from that cross. 41, in the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come now down from that cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. This is the mocking that Jesus encountered. This is the mocking that Jesus lived through being 
the eternal Son of God. He was being mocked by those he would save. He did not fight back. He did not resist. He was obedient to the will of his father. Now let's move on to the scourge. And the Greek means to flog. To be severely with a whip or scourge. These were three levels of Roman beatings. This refers to the worst two. Did this happen? Yes. Matthew 27, 26. Then he released Barabbas from the, for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. A commentator wrote that the tool that they used was for scourging was a whip. And this whip had, was made of leather thongs with jagged bits of metal or bone that would rip the flesh of the victim's back. The Gospels don't really account for a number of whips that Jesus encountered. Some say 40, but 40 is a number in the Mosaic Law. And not necessarily the Romans would abide by the Mosaic Law. What we do know is that this type of punishment and this type of scourging was done to make sure that those that were to be crucified would actually die at crucifixion. As their organs are, they have no skin to protect and their flesh is gone, it, it, it would enable them to die and make sure that they're, that they're dead when they're crucified. As some people actually survive crucifixion. But this was a type of scourging that was meant to make sure that they wouldn't. And also, one of the commentators said that this type of scourging involved two people because it was so exhausting of the type of scourging, of the type of whipping that occurred that when the one person got tired, the other person would come in and kind of like tag team the scourging. And lastly, the Greek word for crucify means to execute someone by nailing him onto a cross. A commentator mentioned that this is the first time that Matthew mentions the type of death he will experience. As the previous two times, he only mentions that he was going to die. Here, he's mentioning that he's going to be crucified. Did this occur? Was he crucified? Yes. Matthew 27, 45 through 50. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for some of those who were standing there when they heard it, began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. See, crucifixion was the most embarrassing and painful way to die. They had seen the Romans many times do this. Especially when it came to enemies of the state. Jews that revolted against the Roman state, they crucified them. So that others might see, so they won't get any ideas. So, let's go back to the disciples now. How do you think they're feeling when Jesus just mentions all of this? He's going to be delivered to the political elite that control their way of life. He's going to be delivered to the Gentiles, the Romans. He's going to be mocked, scourged, and he's going to be crucified. Not die like on a low-key murder mystery that no one knows. No, die publicly for everyone to see. 
So, what could they have felt? They could have felt sadness as they loved their teacher and their friend. They could have, I know one of them probably was happy, Judas, right? Judas, by now, he's saying, why is he going to Jerusalem? Doesn't he not know that they want to kill him? Why? Jesus is crazy. You know what? I can be the one to turn him in. If I'll get a quick book out of this because he probably was thinking that he was going to reign with Jesus in a physical kingdom. They could have felt all worried, guilty by association, right? Well, how is it going to happen to us, <laughs> the political elite? What does that mean to us? I mean, we're, we're, we, we live under this political eliteness, and if they're going to crucify him, what's, what's going to happen to us? Or they were careless and oblivious to the reality that was in front of them. Again, not to steal Brandon's thunder for Sunday, but remember the last time this was mentioned? That he's saying to his disciples that he's going to be delivered, be scourged, mocked, crucified. What was the, the next conversation that they asked Jesus? Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Just like oblivious. Like he just told them this and, he, and, and the Bible does say that they were deeply grieved. And then, hey Jesus, by the way, who's going to be the, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Here. This is a heavy news. And we see the sons of Zebedee asking, so can I sit on your right and your left when, you, when you're going to reign? Oblivious to the truth that was in front of them. See, regardless of how the disciples felt, this had the potential of being really bad news. But our gracious God and Savior, he did not leave it there. He gave his disciples glorious hope. 19. Verse 19, and on the third day, he will be raised up. The Greek for raised up means to resurrect, wake up from the dead. Jesus tells his disciples that he will raise from the dead in three days. Yes, I'm going to be delivered to the religious leaders of the time. Yes, I'm going to be delivered to the Roman Gentiles. Yes, I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be scourged. Yes, I'm going to be crucified. But yes, I'm also going to resurrect. See, resurrection from the dead, that's not something that happened every day. And I'm pretty sure that none of his disciples saw any resurrection Ever until Jesus comes and resurrects a couple of people that they've seen in his ministry. We have in Matthew 9, uh, Jerry's his daughter. We have Luke 7, the son of the nine widow. And short after this prophecy, they will see Lazarus being resurrected from the dead. So they know that Jesus had the power to resurrect, even if it was himself. But again, sometimes... The truth is right in front of you and you just can't see it. Sometimes because God doesn't allow you to see it or sometimes you just don't want to see it because you know what it entails. So how did the disciples respond? This is the third time that Jesus foretells his death to his disciples in the book of Matthew. The first is in Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things for the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. The second, and then what happens right after? He calls Peter Satan. Like, get away from me. 
Satan. That, that you remember? Peter's like, no, this can't happen, Lord. He's like, get behind me, Satan. That was the first time. The second time here is in Matthew 17, 22 to 23. While, and while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. See, he doesn't say scribes or Pharisees or anything like that. And they will kill him. He doesn't say crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. This time they were deeply grieved. But right after this deeply grieved, what, what, what happened? What was the conversation? Hey, Jesus, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Instead of thinking more about the truths that were just mentioned to them, the disciples just don't see the reality that's in front of them. They just don't see it. And we know that when they want to ask questions, they ask questions, right? When they're confused about something, they're like, you know what, Jesus? I, you talked about this. What does it mean? But when it comes to his foretelling of his death and resurrection, they're silent. You know what they're thinking about? Hey, this kingdom of yours, I want to rule with you. What, what, what position am I going to get? Self-centered. Self-centered. A commentator wrote that this was not a coincidence. Matthew wanted to show the readers how blind the disciples were and not recognizing who Jesus was, saying so that the reader, Matthew's telling the reader, hey, don't be blinded like the disciples were blinded. Matthew, the author, he's telling them, don't be blinded like they were. Be smarter than they were. You have the proof that he resurrected. Don't be like them. Make a decision. Make a choice. They were still blinded by their view of the Messiah. They view their view of Jesus, their view of what they wanted Jesus to accomplish for them, not what he was truly there to accomplish. See, to the most Jews of the day and the Jews of today, of our own time, the idea of a suffering and dying Messiah was unthinkable. An absolute self-contradiction. Like their fellow Jews, the disciples were looking for a lion and not a lamb. Matthew, he's basically telling the Jewish reader, his very own disciples were blinded by the by what they eventually saw. Don't be blinded. Open your eyes to believe in Christ as Messiah. As he is who he said he would be. We know that all that Jesus predicted came through. We have plenty of evidence in scripture that points everything that Jesus said would happen, happen. So why is it important to us that Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection? Why did Jesus do this multiple times for his disciples? Why did he tell the disciples multiple times that he was going to die and resurrect? This, the question is simple. We have to go back to the theme of the book. What is the theme of Matthew, guys? What is the theme of Matthew? Jesus as king. Right? Who was the audience of this letter? Who was the audience? The Jews living in Rome. They were the audience. This is another type of conviction that Matthew is trying to do to his reader. He's saying these Jews knew the basic Old Testament prophecies and they were desperately awaiting a Messiah. And he's, Matthew's telling them the Messiah that you've been waiting for is Jesus. Believe. They had grown up learning about the Messiah and praying for his return. 
If they had children's, children's Sunday school, they probably learned it there. If they had VBSs in the summer, they probably learned it there. If they had a youth group and college group, they have probably learned it there. If they had a small group, if they were anything involved in their synagogue, they would know of the Messiah and the prophecies of the Messiah. And Matthew's just telling the readers, and he's telling us today, open your eyes. Christ is king. What more evidence do you want? Open your Bibles to Isaiah 53. This was another prophecy that the Jews, that every Jew had to know. Kind of like Psalm 23 for us, that everyone knows it, whether they know what it's about or not, they can say, oh yeah, Psalm 23, the valley of the shadow of death. To the secular world, everyone knows Psalm 23. For the Jews, everyone knew Isaiah 53. Verse 2, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of a parched ground. He was, not, he was no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, of men of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Verse 10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Matthew was telling them, Jesus is king. And you want to know why? Remember the prophecies that we learned about ever since we were childhood? Jesus is the fulfillment of those prophecies. Look, he even prophesied about himself three times and came true. He is a long-awaited Messiah. Repent and believe in him. What does this entail for us in 2023? Guys, the resurrection is the foundation of the Christian faith. Without a resurrection, there's no Christianity. How do I know this? Read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14. The whole chapter talks about the resurrection of Christ and the importance of it. But verse 15 says, And if Christ have not, has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith is also vain. The resurrection is evidence that Jesus is God and that God accepted Christ's sacrifices for our sins on the cross. Romans 1, 4 who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Because He resurrected from the dead, He's declared the Son of God. So what does the resurrection prove? That Jesus is God, and since Jesus is God, He cannot lie. The Bible is the Word of God because Jesus claims it to be the Word of God. In Luke 2, 24, 44, he says, Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which were written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Meaning, hey, whatever they said, whatever the Old Testament said is true. It's valid. It's the word of God. And he also promised it for the New Testament. John 14, 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all the things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So you can write it down. And what you write down, that will be my word. So what does this mean? So 
If the Bible is true, therefore, the gospel message that's in the Bible is also true. And what is that gospel message? That we are all sinners. That one day we will all be judged by a holy God. And the verdict is not looking good. Guilty. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For there is none righteous, not even one. We are sons of disobedience. We are inventors of evil. That is how the Bible describes mankind. There's no way to save ourselves. The standard is perfection. And no one is perfect. That's why the Ten Commandments exist. They're a tutor for us. To show us that we can never earn heaven on our own. We can never have self-righteousness. It'll never be enough. We're destined to hell. We're destined to darkness. To eternal separation from Christ. But the gospel. The good news is that Christ. Lived the perfect life. You and me could never live. That righteousness that we need to get to heaven. He did it. He did it all. He died on the cross. He was scorched. He was mocked. He died shamefully on this cross. For you and for me. He rose from the third day. On the third day. And is seated on the right, at the right hand of God. And he's offering salvation to those who repent and believe. Don't be like the disciples today. Jesus is telling you, I am God. I am the only way, the truth, and the life. I give you salvation if you repent and believe. A couple of applications to close. First, meditate on the divinity of Christ. He is everything He said He would be. He is our Savior. He is our Redeemer. He is our friend. He is the Son of God. He is God. Secondly, trust in the truth of Scripture. Trust in the truth of Scripture. We believe in the resurrection because the Bible says it. And it's God's very own words. And the resurrection affirmed that God, that Jesus is God, and He cannot lie. And He affirmed the word, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Therefore, it is the very own words of God. Number three, praise God for His redemptive plan. Guys, man's fall was no accident to God. Right when he fell, he had a plan of salvation in Genesis 3.15. Right there and then, the gospel was given to us. Didn't, didn't catch God by surprise. He knew when he created mankind what mankind would do. And he already had a plan in eternity past on how to save us. Lastly, don't let this pass your head like it did to the disciples. Give this importance. Jesus is who he said he would be. The Christ, the son of the living God, the forgiver of sins. Please don't live today. Don't leave today without making him your Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word that is true. Your very own words, God. Thank you for allowing us to for, to, thank you for revealing yourself to us, not only through creation and our conscience, but through special revelation, which is 
your son, Jesus Christ, and your holy, precious word. Thank you for giving us the instructions on how to be saved, how to be made right with you. Thank you for Jesus Christ and his divinity. Thank you because Jesus is who he said he would be, God, the son of God, forgiver of sins. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you because he lives today at the right hand of God and he's able and willing to forgive those who come to him. Thank you, Christ, for our salvation. Thank you for the eternal hope that we have in you. Thank you for giving us a way out of our sins, of our trespasses. Thank you, Lord, for your redemptive plan in our, for us. And I pray that every young person here today that does not know you as Savior, that does not know you as Lord, that you can open their spiritual eyes for them to do this, Father. That they can see themselves as sinners in need of a Savior and they can cry out to you for salvation, Father. I pray this and I know that you can do this because you are mighty to save. It is in your precious name that we pray. Amen.